Hello, it's Lisa Harden. Welcome back to my podcast, Poison Bald and Still Standing. Today I have special guest with me, Phyllis Felber. Um, Phyllis and I have been friends for many years, probably back to 09, I think is when we first met. Phyllis has just recently um, lost her husband to liver cancer, and so I wanted her to come on and share with us kind of what she went through as a caregiver to someone that was um, diagnosed and then actually going through the process of chemo and and um, hospice and what it's like to take care of somebody at home going through the disease. And so I asked her to join us. I'm just going to have her kind of talk about what happened, kind of go back to the beginning when when Bill was diagnosed and then the process of getting to where you were or you are today. Yes, um, Bill was diagnosed in the fall of 2015. And uh, at that time, the doctors told us it was stage four liver cancer the problem was they didn't know where it originated, and if you're familiar with cancer, if you don't know the origination, it puts issues on the what kind of treatment you get. It also, um, you know, termination of life. That all those things come into play when they don't know where it originated. But um, they were they thought it was the lungs, but it was stage four liver is what he was diagnosed with. And um, Bill was a fighter, and he immediately said, "This, I." We were crying about it and everything, and he said, this is not going to get me, Phyllis. I'm going to live. They had told us at one point he had six months to a year to live, and Bill said, uh, cancer hasn't met me yet, and that was his exact words, and knowing him, it was, you thought, okay, this guy is going to fight it, which is a wonderful thing, and I think it's a reason that Bill lived two and a half years with this terrible disease and hardly complained and fought through some horrible issues with his chemo treatments and such but he was he was a tough guy and um so he he fought it as long as he could but one thing along the way is that you don't know um what it's going to be like to be a caregiver i had a sister who passed away from cancer and i did spend some time with her as she was going through um the termination of her life and i was a little bit prepared but it's not the same as 24/7 with someone like i had with bill um, you know, the doctors and everything are so great. They try to give you help and advice. But as you go through this process, only you know how you can deal with it and what you need to deal with. Um, friends are great. I think that um, when you have someone like Bill who's fighting the disease, it sometimes it makes it difficult as the caregiver because you do not know what to say to him because you don't want to bring him down. You don't want them to think, oh, oh gosh, she's given up on me and given up on my life. And Bill had even said that to some of his friends because I was told by the doctors that, you know, things were pretty gloom. And so I was trying to prepare him for what I thought was the worst and things that I thought we needed to, to determine and decide before he passed. And um, that was very difficult. So there were times when I didn't ask all the questions or act like this was the end of his life because I wanted him to always have hope that he could be the one guy who beat it against all odds. And um, so that was difficult, but, you know, it, you're trying to decide what to do. Did you, do you face it or and try to get him to face it or just let him live his life out hoping that there's always a cure? And go ahead, Lisa. Let's go back to the, let's go back to when he was first diagnosed. And so talk a little bit about, I mean, because he was given six months to live and he lived two and a half years after that so they don't always know when they when they diagnose you what's going to happen but kind of go back and talk about when he was first diagnosed and then he went through chemo 
and then he stopped chemo because it was making him so sick. But kind of just talk about that process of how it all kind of went down when he was first diagnosed. Yeah, when when he first got diagnosed, of course, the doctors came on pretty strong with a dose of chemo. And as Lisa says, the poison they put in your body. Um, what happened was Bill actually had a couple of doses of chemo. He was okay. The third one, he actually was put in the hospital for 12 days. He had every known... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Every known ailment or symptom. side effect or si- side symptom effect, yeah. to chemo. And I know Lisa's had some of those and talked about them, but it put him in the hospital for 12 days. And the doctors were perplexed because they knew they had to come at it so strong. Well, they went back once he got out of the hospital and kind of recouped a little bit. They went in again and they were trying to give him another dose that was a little bit less um, however, same thing, back in the hospital 12 more days. And it was so awful because the side effects he had were worse than the disease. I mean, you know, that's the bad thing about chemo is that it almost kills you to save your life. And literally, he could hardly walk because he had neuropathy on, in feet and hands. He um, was sick all the time. It was just he lost tons of weight, like 60 pounds, real quickly into chemo. And um, it kind of put us in a mode of, oh, my gosh, this is not going well. But we had a great doctor, and he analyzed again, and he called um, Bill his um, precious one or uh, some kind of special flower that he had to be treated a little differently than some others. And he uh, lowered the doses on his chemo and changed his medicines up. So once that happened, we were able to go through chemo and... It didn't bother him. And the the side effects that he had, he was able to uh, take some vitamins that really um, helped him with a lot of those things and just natural things like vitamin B complex and um, mineral oil, um, different things that he was taking that were over the counter that really helped through the chemo more than anything else they'd given him. So that's kind of where he started off really horrible and had a really bad beginning, but he... um, he fought through it. One time I know he thought, I'm, I can't stand this. You know, you, your body's just fighting it, and it's not doing any good, and you want to get out. But this is the only, thing they, the only hope they have for you. So he went through it and um, went through chemo for off and on for the whole two and a half years, really. And he went, how often did he have chemo? He had chemo um, every, every other week. Uh, he did it for... Every week at first, but then they they took him to since he was such a gentle flower that he was, they they took it to every other week, and uh, he was able to work most of the time until the very end. Um, so he um, hung in there just like Lisa did. You know, you you got to do what you got to do, and he worked. And um, we our lives changed. That's the thing about this whole deal with chemo and being a couple. You know, we were the couple that always went out. We did fun things. We were always out and about and doing. Uh, activities traveling but that all had to come to an end because as you know your life changes in so many ways and so you realize that your partner now cannot withstand a lot of the things just going out to dinner sometimes was more than he could deal with so that it changed our lives drastically you know it's interesting because I as everybody knows because I talk about it nonstop, is I gained a lot of weight during chemo Bill lost a lot of weight and I had a chemo nurse explain to me as I was sitting through chemo one day complaining about my six-pound weight gain that week, which happened often. And she said, we would actually rather you gain weight on chemo than lose weight because obviously as you lose weight, then the chemo's too strong for you. And I think, I feel like 
you know, his symptoms were so harsh, and thankfully I kind of came through it, the, the chemo unscathed as far as neuropathy. I don't have any of that. Um, and he had all of those symptoms, sadly. And I just wonder sometimes, and I think about this, I was talking, thinking about this the other day, was the chemo effect so harsh on him, and he had all those side effects because he had lost so much weight it's just harder on your body when you're losing weight. And when she explained it to me that day, I was like, that makes so much sense that they don't want you losing weight, although it's a natural thing for a lot of people to do when they're on chemo, depending on the kind of chemo you have, that you lose weight. And I just, because he did, he dropped like 65 pounds. Yeah. And I just wonder if that some of the side effects were so strong because of that weight loss. I don't know if it was that because he lost all of his appetite and everything through it. So, um, and don't get me wrong. I love my Bill, but he was a little chunky guy, you know, so he, he could stand to have lost a few pounds, but not in that way, of course, no one would want that. Right. But so he, he lost all of his appetite, so he started losing, you know, this weight, and then being in the hospital, you know, really, he also developed another symptom of chemo, um, and I forgot what it's called now, I can't think of it, um, mucus, mucositis. And what it, that is, is when you get sores all in your mouth, and they'll go all the way down to your esophagus. And he literally could not swallow water without being in serious pain. And um, so that was a main reason he lost weight. He literally could not. They had to start trying to give him, keep him on IVs and everything. But he could not take any water. Even pills were painful for him. So the, getting having that. Um, and the, the third round, after he had went through two rounds of that, the next time they put him on ke- chemo, he told me, he said, if I get any sores in my mouth, I'm stopping the chemo. That's it. I don't care what they say because I cannot live like that. And luckily, the doc found out the right chemicals mixture for Bill, and he was able to take chemo then and not have the mucositis, which was so hard on him. So that was, you know, doctors, like, they're – it's kind of a guessing game, you know, when they're making your – putting those chemicals together, what you need and what you don't need. And who, people need different things. Mm-hmm. So um, – Anyway, they, when they finally found the, the cocktail that was right for Bill, he was able to live a better life because of that and stay with his chemo. It's interesting, too, that every chemo is different and your side effects are different. My dad had chemo that had he had the sores in his mouth. And so I was prepared for that. But then they quickly tell me, like my second treatment, I think, that the chemo I was taking, you don't get sores in your mouth, which the sores just sound horrible Mm -hmm. my dad had a wash that they gave him that he could wash his mouth out which kind of eased the pain of the sores but i don't think anything could take him away the pain is bad as it's just Mm -hmm. horrible pain yeah bill tried all the washes and everything that and none of it none of it helped it it was just a matter of time till they went away when they got him off of that chemo and those chemicals but um you know going through all this with him you know it's as a caregiver you're you want to make them comfortable, but there was literally nothing I could do. And our doctor got to where um, he, the first thing and the last thing he would say to me, he called me boss lady. And he'd say, okay, boss lady, what else do I need to know? Because sometimes Bill wouldn't really communicate what was really going on in his life because he always looked at things like, oh, this isn't that bad. I'm tough. I can handle it. But I saw what he was going through every day, and I didn't want to make light of it. So I would tell the doc, and he'd give me these dirty looks, but, you know, the doctor would say, okay, then we need to do this. So I was always the last word, 
And I think that's when you have someone going through this. I never missed a doctor's appointment with him because I really felt like I knew the true story and was going to tell Bill's story so he wouldn't have to. And I think that's really important as a caregiver. You can miss a chemo appointment, but don't miss that doctor's appointment because that is where you need to know what's going on and you can speak for the patient too. And I think that's really important. Yeah. So Bill worked up until like a month? He worked up until about two months before he died. He Finally, I talked him into going on, um, uh, taking a leave of absence, going on short term. And, uh, And then it wasn't too long after he taken off of work that we um found out that um he well one day basically it was a bad turn quick um he got up and he just couldn't walk i couldn't help him even walk because you know even though he lost a lot of weight he still weighed 175 pounds and um trying to run him around on the on his walker on the carpet was just too hard for me so um he finally looked at me and said Phil, you got to call an ambulance. I got to go to the hospital. And boy, that was when he said that I knew things were bad because he was the kind that would be like, go get me this. We'll figure out, put me on a dolly or something, (laughs) wheel me around, whatever. But yeah, so we had to call, um, I called an ambulance and, uh, you know, I didn't even know at that point really what to do because we had had home health. Um, and they had only been with us for like a week when he took this bad turn for the worse. So I really didn't have a good time to get to know them, to get information, who to call, and all that. And I had the paperwork there, but when I needed to call the ambulance, I didn't even think about calling them. I called the doctor, and I called um, the um, ambulance, 911. And I didn't even know that. I didn't know that you you should call 911, even if it's not a real life-threatening emergency. I'd never gotten an ambulance before. So call 911, and they'll ask if it's life-threatening, and you can tell them what it is, and then they'll send the ambulance to you, but it won't be a situation with, you know, fire trucks ablaze and all that stuff. So they wheeled Bill off um, in the um, ambulance, and I followed to meet him there, and I'd call the doctor, and, of course, they got him a room in the cancer floor at St. Francis, so we went straight there. And um, then he was there for a week uh, while they tried to – you know, see where he was at. But the when his doc finally showed up, his oncologist, um, he knew right away when he saw Bill that this this was short term. Now, this was the end of his life, and um, Bill was still in denial about it. But um, the doctor took me outside. Well, actually, I waited for him because I wanted to know. I'm a firm believer in just give me the bad news and I'll deal with it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's like that, but that was how I am. So I sat outside the room and waited for the doctor to come for his appointment. And then we sat down on this little bench, and he basically told me that my husband had 30 days to live. And that's the first time he ever gave me a time frame because he was a believer that, you know, there were powers greater than him that could make these decisions. And he's seen patients that had brain cancer that shouldn't have lived, that lived for years. So he never liked giving you a time frame. But when he saw bill that time he knew he knew that it was um coming close and and if you don't know this once you get to that stage and the doctor tells you it's terminal then the hospital has to release you and um and that's when things get really crazy Mm. and um but uh anyway so uh after that happened then i 
I tried to explain to Bill that, you know, that it, he had 30 days to live and, and um, he still was in denial of it, but he knew he couldn't get up. He, he tried to get up and do things and he couldn't even stand any longer. And, um, he almost fell in the hospital and the nurse and I were trying to hold him up and it was just a really awkward thing because he was still fighting. And so when we took him home, um, before we took him home actually is when things start happening and they bring in the hospice person from the St. Francis hospital. So whatever hospital you'd be in, the hospice person will show up in your room and I'm there. And so is Bill. And she begins to explain to me that, you know, they have a hospice service, but there's others that you can look at too. Well, I guess what I'm finding out now as I'm researching hospice a little bit because of my interest in this is that you don't have to pick the hospital's hospice, and maybe it's not even the best one for you. I know myself, I just wanted whatever was easiest. Mm -hmm. And I look back on it now after talking to some other hospice organizations, and I really wish I would have had someone, a friend or a family member, call and ask people about their hospice. One thing to keep in mind you make sure you get a not-for-profit hospice unless you have really great insurance because most hospices are free. They're not-for-profit, so even if you don't have good insurance, they're going to cover every single thing. But there are those that if you got into extended care, it, you could possibly absorb some, you know, cost. So my thought is please look at the hospice organizations here locally. There's great ones. They're all great. Um, I'm not sorry I picked... St. Francis, I just think that as my situation went on, there might have been situations where other hospice groups could have been able to help me more. But um, the um, the whole thing with hospice is it's so overwhelming because what you've just found out is that your loved one's dying. They've got to take you. Decide, you've got to decide, do you want to go home? Do you want to go to, a, like, Clare House, which is a wonderful hospice in Tulsa? Mm -hmm. I visited it, but... Um, Bill wanted to go home, and so I was trying to meet his wishes. Um, but what you don't realize, and maybe I'd forgotten from when my sister passed, but when you get home with them, you are the caregiver 24-7, and that is everything it means. You are the person who will have to change their diaper. That is very difficult when you don't have a, a large group of family like I didn't at this situation. My family lives in Dallas. So it was very difficult, and as a host, as a caregiver, you're also losing the person you love most in the world. And there you are trying to be a nurse, um, psychiatrist a little bit too, and trying to help them through what they're going through and their issues, mental issues, and yeah, you know, just everything. And um, I think that uh, if I'd have had a, um, a hospice organization that maybe could have given me a little more time, their of their time. Uh, I might have been better off because it was physically demanding on me to have to take care of Bill to the point that sometimes I would go to bed. So when you when the doctor came in and, and said basically he has 30 days to live, do you go home that day? Is that's when the hospice nurse came in and then you're, you go you take him home that day and then hospice shows up that day at your house? How did that how did that stage go? Um, they give you a couple of days at the hospital and they're pretty sweet about not you know booting you right out. And and then the hospice lady, I believe she came the very next day, the very next morning to sit with me. And um, she was very kind and kind of explained to me what to expect. 
what I did like about hospice is that when they realized I was going to keep him at home, I had gone home the day before and Bill's friends had helped me move furniture because we put him in our master bedroom. And they brought the, got the bread, the bed brought in. Um, at that time, we thought we might need a shower chair. Well, that never came to fruition because he, he couldn't get up to shower. Bill home was probably two days later. His room was all set up. The bed was all made. And he was pretty well set up in the situation he was going to be in. Um, so that, that was nice that they get, they get on that really quickly for you. And they understand that the insurance companies are not going to allow you to stay. So you've got to go somewhere. And at that point, a lot of people I know will go to like Claire house and they'll just take them straight to Claire house. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, my husband really, one thing he said to me is I was telling him about Claire house and he said to me, well, I don't want to, I want to be with you. And I said, well, if we go there, you'll be with me. There's a bed in the room, you know, but he didn't quite understand what that would look like. Mm -hmm. And and until the end, Bill, um, he even had a dream one night about, he woke up and he thought he was at the Claire house and he said, what's going on? What do we do here? And I said, what are you talking about? And he just was all confused. And, and I said, Bill, you're in your room. You're in our room. This is our TV. This is our bed. This is, you know, our room. And so it was like I knew from that moment he never wanted to go anywhere. He wanted to be at his home. Yeah. So I, I never made it. That's not the right choice for everyone, though. For Bill and for me, it was a right choice, but it isn't what everyone should do. I just, Claire House is a wonderful place. And if you could visit that before you have to make a decision, that would be a great thing to do. And did when they provide when they provided the bed, so they paid for the bed and everything. You didn't have to rent that or no, that's nothing. They provide and they hospice. Once you get on hospice too, they bring all your medications and um, they anything you need, uh, diapers, wipes. I had bought some of that stuff thinking I needed to have it, but no, they they brought it and um, and whatever I needed, I just tell them that they would bring extras i could call them in the office and let them know for the nurse came again or the um aid and uh and l- let me say this about um i've been around a few hospice people in my life and let me tell you they are angels mm-hmm. i have never met one that didn't that you could tell that was a calling you never they say to me you never go into nursing school thinking oh i want to take care of people when they die your goal is to make people live and help people live. But they're, they are special people because of what they do and how they do it. And they are the kindest souls. They are so considerate because they treated me as well as they treated Bill. And there were times when they would sit with me in the living room before they'd even go see Bill and say, Phyllis, how are you doing? Mm. What's going on with you? Tell me what's happening. And Bill even noticed that, and he said to me one day, I don't like it when they go in and talk to you um, about me when, when they're not in the room with me. And I said, well, they're not talking always about you. Maybe they want to check on me. <laughs> so they, they really do consider the family, and they're just, they're just the most amazing people, all of them that I've come in contact with. And I think that if you um, – uh, you will find that out yourself. I hope you never have to. But if you do, uh, they will be your angels of mercy, I guarantee you. Well, and you had one of the hospice nurses actually attended the funeral, right. which I thought was very cool. Yeah, Mike came, and, and uh, our, our our nurse's aide, well, her and I got to be good buddies, and they she wanted to come and couldn't make it, but Mike was there, and um, it just, 
and just thinking, oh my gosh, I've spent a month with, month with these people, and I've already I've felt so close to them. And but you share your strongest emotions, mm-hmm. and um, the the one thing I always worried about was was I taking good enough care of Bill because there's so much to do, and um, I always would ask both of them is he, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? You know, am I changing him enough? Am I, you know, keeping him clean and, you know, all that. And they, they all agreed that I was, I think they would actually tell me if I was not doing something right. And I would want them to, because mm-hmm. there's so much you're trying to handle. And plus just some nights I just lay in bed and cry, you know? And, um, but then when I got around Bill, I'd try to be strong, but I can remember one time when I was trying to, people that are in beds like that, they slide down. So you don't want them to touch the bed because it can cause more problems or bed sores. And I was trying my best to pull them up in the bed, and I'd watched um, our nurse's aide do it, and she did it so easily. But I found out later she was 30 years younger than me, mm-hmm. so I was feeling better then. But but I, I went to pull them up, and it was all my strength, and I was grunting and groaning trying to pull them up. And then I just started crying. And Bill said, what's the matter with you? I, he goes, it's okay. You can't pull me up. I said, just think about how you'd feel if you were if I was laying in that bed and I could you couldn't do things for me like you wanted to and as quickly and as well and that's the hard part is that you're not a nurse but you're all of a sudden having to do things that nurses do mm-hmm. and um and uh he said I get it I understand now and so then you know sometimes you'd just be taking care of them and it, you'd cry and just because it's just you know it's the end of that life it's yeah. hard well, and I want to touch on too. We didn't. Really, I didn't really even ask you if I could say this, so I'm going to say it. And then you can give me the cut sign if I'm mm-hmm. not supposed to. But and we just talked about this yesterday. Is that Phyllis and Bill had only been together five years, and so it was a great five years. They they were a perfect match for each other, and so it's easy to just like you, we talked about. Is that it's easy to feel like it's such a short time to be with someone that you loved as much as you loved him and he worshiped the ground you walked on. But I think that you were brought to his life as we've talked about to, to take care of him. I mean, I think that that's, it was a short five years, but you were there for him. And I think that you were meant, that was all meant to be. Yeah. I, I even told my mom at one point, um, I think because my first husband passed also. And I, I said, I think that, um, I was meant to take care of these men. That's was part of my what your job what was job was and yeah and um with bill um one thing i before we even started dating because we're older you know i'm in my 60s oh, i was 60 when we met and he was 67 and um i asked one of my friends and i don't remember i who it was but i said how you know, how long do you think you need to be married to be able to take care of somebody? Because I could just see Bill, he'd, he'd, he was not good to his body over the years. He was an adventurous guy and did crazy things. And, and, um, and I just, you know, I thought, do I want to take care of a man? But this man, and all my friends will attest to this, that this man adored me, worshipped me. I couldn't have found a better guy who cared more for me. So mm-hmm. I, it was, I finally had to give in. It was just, it had to be. But at his funeral, I had written a, a little little something to say to everyone and what I had realized over this time was that it's not how long you love someone it's how much you love someone yeah so you could just know them a day but if you really love them you can get through this it's nothing saintly all my friends would say oh you know you're so strong especially Bill's guy friends you know Phyllis you're an angel for doing this and I'm like 
what else would I do? This right. is the man I love. What, what else would I do but take care of him the best I can? And this short period of time I'm taking care of him and struggling is nothing to what the rest of my life's going to be without him. You know? right. And so it's, that's a, a thing that you have to think about. And um, another thing I wanted to say about hospice is that most of them do give care after the death. And um, they offer you counseling. They will talk to you. And some of them do a better job than that than others, too. It's nothing to check into. is Because uh, you kind of know your personality. You know, I was taught with my family, we're kind of the kind of people, you know, it's like, okay, this is past. It's horrible. But let's get back on with life. But some people will take some more time mm-hmm. to to move on. And if you need that, be sure and make sure your hospice people, even though they'll send you things that, don't be afraid to take advantage of those things because, against again, they're free. And you, and you might need that extra counseling or be in the gr- groups of grief uh, folks sharing the same things you are. So there's hospice offers a lot more than just that little um, piece of the death, unfortunately. Well, and it's funny because I think that, you know, we hear about hospice all the time. People use hospice. But until you've gone through it like you went through it, I had no idea what all they offer. I mean, they, they are truly, like you said, saints. And the fact that they do just take over and help you and guide you through your day. And, yeah, they're not there all day, but when they do come. And I think you mentioned that you can actually, you can actually ask them to come even more, that you didn't know you could do that during that process. Yeah, not all of them allow that. Um, I actually did ask for more. My, my son was out of town on business, and I didn't want him to come in because his business is real seasonal. And um, I didn't want him to come home too soon, even though he offered so I was by myself for so much of the time, and um, I actually did ask for that, and they were not able to give me any more. But I will tell you now, after my investigations, other hospice groups are a little bit more lenient uh, with the time. Actually, I was talking to um, Miller the other day, and they were telling me that they're, everyone that works for them, everyone from the office people have to do so much volunteer work sitting with the patients Mm. and it's just something that they have come up with so all of them spend now they won't necessarily like somebody who's a receptionist at their office isn't going to go change a diaper but she'll be there to sit there with the family to do whatever she can do or he and um so there's there's different that's the thing about looking into other hospice groups because if you are a person who doesn't have a strong family right at hand then it would probably be good for you to um check into that and another thing uh there were lots of bills he had tons of friends and and they all offered so kindly to do things for him and my friends too but here's the deal i didn't want bill to have other people tend to his personal things at that time Mm -hmm. of his life i thought i wanted him to have as much dignity as he can because this the death through cancer is not a dignified situation so anything i could do to help him with that and I knew he felt comfortable with me, so that was never going to be a problem. And um, so I wanted to do as much as I could. When my son came home, I asked Bill about him helping, and um, Bill was fine with it. Him and my son have a great relationship. But what was great was my son's a young, strong guy. He was able to physically move Bill in ways that I was not able to. So a lot of the uh, changing and things that were painful to Bill as he got bed sores and stuff like that that Danny could help me and it was such a huge help so you know that's just the way I felt about Bill 
uh, his friends probably would have had no problems coming in doing whatever I wanted. But I just, I wanted Bill to keep his dignity as long as he could and keep, and when the friends came to visit, I wanted him to visit with them and not worry about changing a diaper or cleaning his, you know, or feeding him or whatever. So, and that was a blessing for me to be able to actually get to do those things for him as hard as it was. Yeah, sure. Well, I appreciate you coming on today. And I want to say that, um, not that Phyllis is an expert or, or that I'm an expert, but she's got, just recently gone through it and can probably answer any questions people have about the end of life of somebody that you love and going through and using hospice. And so if you um, have questions, you're welcome to send them to me and I'll get them to Phyllis and we can answer any questions you might have during, for this process. Um, you know, like she learned it, you kind of learn it as you go, yeah. which is sometimes frustrating and scary. So we would love to help anybody that might be at that point with a family member and you are the caregiver and you're trying to figure out how that all works. I think it sounds like they kind of help you through that, but she's found out a lot afterwards and mm-hmm. just talking to, to other people that have gone through it and talking to a couple of other hospices that there's, there's actually some, there's more that can happen depending on the hospice that you use. So we would love to answer any questions. If people have them, you can reach out to me and then I can get them to Phyllis and we can answer any questions that you might have. Yeah. I would love to help anybody I can and provide any information that I can help you with. Cause I, I don't want anybody to go through all the, it's so hard. It's such a hard time and mm-hmm. I want somebody to have help if they need it. So please reach out to reach us. Out. All right. Well, thanks Phyllis. Thanks Lisa. Alrighty. Bye. Bye.